We are back for another week in the world of Saster with me, Harry Stebbings, at hstebbings1996 with two Bs on Instagram. And my word, I'm excited for the show today. This company and founder are just incredible. And what I love even more, not Valley-based, but based in Utah. And so with that, I'm thrilled to welcome Carl Sun, founder and CEO at Lucidchart, a visual workspace that combines diagramming, data visualization, and collaboration to accelerate understanding and drive innovation. To date, Carl has raised $114 million with Lucidchart from some of the best in the business, including Manu at K. Meritech, Iconic, GV, and Kickstart in Utah. As for Carl, prior to founding the company, he spent six years at Google in some fascinating roles, including head of patents, head of business development in China, and running Google's energy investments. And as a result of his success with Lucidchart, Carl was recently announced as EY's Entrepreneur of the Year Award. I do also want to say a huge thank you, though, to George at Meritech, Gavin at Kickstart, and Ben at Bamboo HR for some fantastic questions and suggestions today. I really do so appreciate that. But before we dive into the show today, you have to check out Cordoba. Cordoba is the leading AI writing assistant used by companies like Intuit and Twitter to keep content on brand. These days, literally everyone with a company writes content. And because of this, it's hard for everyone to stay aligned and maintain consistency. With Cordoba, you can customize writing guidelines to your unique brand and get everyone at your company to write with the same style, terminology, and brand voice whenever and wherever they are writing content. For SaaS to listeners, Cordoba is providing a 25% discount off the first year for their startup plan. You can sign up for a free trial and get this offer by visiting cordoba.com forward slash Sasta. That's Cordoba with a Q. Writing is one way of attracting new customers, but another way is to increase conversion and to collect and display reviews from your past customers. That's where Reviews.io comes in. Reviews.io not only collects reviews from your happy customers, but is also able to help you publish these reviews on Google and on your social media platform of choice. Reviews.io is a fully API-driven solution that can be fully customized around your company requirements. Reviews Reviews.io is packed full of useful features, but one that I found the most useful is that they're able to tell me who my most powerful brand advocates are via the Reviews.io dashboard. Reviews.io is used by over 5,000 companies, including leaders of industry like Brex, Opendoor, and Carfax. And as a special offer for Sasta listeners, Reviews.io is giving one month free, no risk to all listeners. Just use the promo code HARRY, that's H-A-R-R-Y. But now we've acquired those customers, that's just the beginning, and that's why you need to try Zoho CR. Catering to businesses of all sizes, guaranteeing shorter sales cycles and higher customer retention rates. Who does not love that? Plus, the software gives you complete visibility and control over your customer's life cycle and equips you to connect with your customers across every channel. It also offers integrations with over 300 of the most popular apps on the market. While change is inevitable, it can be comfortable with Zoho CRM. Sign up with Zoho CRM in two easy steps. First, visit zohocrm.com forward slash Sasta and then hit the Get Started button. It's as simple as it sounds. Start your free trial by clicking the button on the same page. You'll also be happy to know that Zoho CRM offers a version that's completely free. Again, sign up with Zoho, the world's favorite CRM, at zohocrm.com forward slash Sasta. But that's enough from me. So now I'm very excited to hand over to Carl Sun, founder and CEO at Lucidchart. Good. That's perfect. Okay, I think we're warmed up. Carl, it's absolutely fantastic to have you on the show. As I said, I heard so many great things from George, from Brian, from Gavin. So thank you so much for joining me today. 
Well, thank you for having me, Harry. I've been excited for this one for a long time. I've actually been a fanboy of the company and the story for a while as well, which I don't think you know that before. But I do want to ask, you know, it's a wonderful world, the world of SaaS, but how did you make your way in and how did you come to found LucidChart? Oh, that's a great question. And, uh, you know, it was a pretty circuitous route, quite frankly. I started my training on the technical side, thinking I wanted to be a scientist or engineer, in particular, thinking I wanted to do research. And when it came down to it, I realized there was no one area I was so passionate about that I wanted to spend at least six to seven years or maybe my whole life diving deep and becoming the world's expert. But I did love technology and I wanted to work in technology. So I thought technology policy might be the area for me. And that took me to studying law and policy, which landed me ultimately in Silicon Valley, where I was practicing law for several years. Then I got a call from a friend who actually was the first lawyer at Google, and he was looking for someone to start the uh, patent team there. Back in that day, people had started to hear about Google. They were already powering AOL and Yahoo, but it was just another search engine and search engines were sort of a dime a dozen. There was you know, AltaVista, Lycos, Inktomi, and all those. But I went and talked to them, interviewed there, and was just super impressed with the people I met and thought this would be fun and just jumped on board at that point. And you know, had the opportunity to run the patent team for a few years and then had the chance to move to China to help start Google's China office, leading business development. And you know, during this time, I sort of drank the Kool-Aid about how software could be delivered online with instant updates and features pushed out to users every day, as opposed to these release cycles of every you know one or two years. And also Google had pushed out Google Docs and what is now Google Sheets back in the day. And those products have certainly gotten a lot better, but I think I saw the promise of those. And so when I moved back to the States, moved to Utah and actually met my co-founder who was still a student at the time. And Ben had built the first version of Lucidchart because he needed the product at his previous startup. He had worked as a CTO as a startup when he dropped out of school. And I was just amazed at how smoothly and seamlessly this graphical application operated in a browser when the text-based applications that I was used to working with, like Google Docs and Google Sheets, were actually pretty clunky and kludgy back in the day. So loved what Ben had built, got to know him, was super impressed with him as an individual as well, and decided to jump on board. So that was a story. It was not planned, but just being in the right place at the right time. And the rest is history. And what a journey it's been since then. But I do have to ask, it's such a unique and diverse background, as you said, from the patent practice at Google and opening that to opening Google's China office. So with that kind of incredible experience in mind, Question from George at Maritech, who asked, how did your broader journey help prepare you for your current position? And what were some of the key learnings and takeaways for you? You know, as I look back, I think, and it's really only with retrospect that I realize this, I think the background I had brought me two things. So the first is, you know, maybe confidence. You know, growing up and early in my career, even though I think I was fairly good at the things I was doing, I'd say I didn't have a lot of confidence in myself. I think I probably suffered from a fair amount of imposter syndrome. I think most of us do. And so I think having that broad background and realizing that I was developing a little bit of expertise in many areas, I think that brought a confidence that maybe there are other things that I could try and be successful at as well. So I'd say that's the mindset piece. The key takeaway, I would say, is people. And that is something that I saw directly at Google. I think the quality and caliber of the people that I was surrounded by there was just amazing. And that is something that I took away and realized that if I were to ever do something, I wanted to have that kind of an environment where I was just surrounded by people who are just awesome and fantastic and better than you are at everything that they do. Incredibly hard of me to go off schedule, but you said there about the imposter syndrome. And honestly, Carl, it's something that I actually struggle with a lot. And I always used to use the show ruthlessly for my own self-advancement. Can I ask, what would you advise me in terms of embracing it, getting over it, kind of really dealing with it in many ways? How do you think about that? And what would you advise someone who is struggling maybe with that imposter syndrome and self-doubt? Well, I think your record already speaks for itself, Harry. So I think that's 
a big part of it. But I think it's just overcoming that fear. And I think for a long time, I feared failure. And I think probably most of us do. Failure is not necessarily fun. But the first few times you go through it and you get through it, you realize that there's actually something good that comes out of it. You come out of it sort of stronger and wiser. And so, you know, trying to overcome that fear of failure and being willing to take some chances and push yourself, I think that's the advice I would have for anyone. I think, you know, so many of the industry has it. And I think it's a lot of confidence on the front end, which seems to mask it. It's certainly how I managed to deal with it. I do want to discuss the team and talent itself. I think, you know, we forget just how central talent is to any scaling organization. And when I spoke to many of the people that we know and have in common, especially George at Maritech and Gavin and Brian, they all spoke about your ability to assess talent, scale it, but also to sustain it. So I do want to kind of double click on some of these elements. Starting at the very beginning, say, of this talent funnel, when we're identifying what we need, how does one know when to hire generalists versus when to hire specialists? Let's start on that. Yeah, I think that it's an evolution. So in the early days, we hired almost all generalists. And over time, I think we've realized that we need to hire specialists. And here in the States, we just had the Super Bowl. And I read something that David Satterwhite, who's now the CRO at User Testing, wrote a while back that really resonates with me and I think addresses this question well. So he used this sports analogy around scaling a high-tech startup and compared basketball to American football. And in basketball, you have five people on the court on a team, so a small number. And while there are positions and there are plays, in general, you really have general skills. You know, everyone can dribble, they can shoot, they can pass. And so in the early days of a startup, you're playing basketball. You can have more generalists because you're playing a bit more positionless. You can ad-lib a lot. In fact, if something breaks down, you want people who have all of those skills and can just riff and sort of play backyard ball and figure things out. And you sort of also have that natural chemistry by virtue of the small team and by spending a lot of time together. Now, in American football, by contrast, you know, you've got 11 people from each team on the field at one time, and each person has a very specific job. So for each play, they have a very specific discrete task. You know, maybe you have to block this particular person on the other team, or you need to run this particular route. You need to run in this direction, not because you're going to get the ball, but because that will draw the defense in that direction. So it opens up opportunities for someone else on your team. So as a company scales, you really start to play football. And when you do that, you need more specialization. If a play breaks down, like I said, you can riff when you're playing basketball. But in football, if people don't do their particular job, everything blows up and you get tackled for a loss and you go backwards. So in football, you have to get many more people on the same page in order to execute. And it seems like this happens, you know, certainly when you get to a couple hundred people, that's when we started to feel it. And I think it can also depend on the distribution of your team. I think we've been fortunate because we've mainly been co-located, but we really felt this when we moved to two buildings because we overflowed. And even though it was a building just across the street, just having those people in separate locations just meant really it became an order of magnitude harder to coordinate and understand what other people were doing. Totally. I mean, it's always challenging when you get even across the street, that kind of split in teams. I do have to ask again on schedule. I had an angel investment of mine though the other day. They've raised about $6 million in financing and they found this person who is incredibly talented generally, but they don't need a role specifically. And also the person doesn't really fit into a specific role. So it's not even that they're generalists or specialists. They're kind of this kind of special projects person who's kind of plastic enough to do many roles. How would you think about hiring for that sort of position in the early days? And do you think that's a luxury that maybe only larger companies with more elastic budgets should engage with advice-wise? No, I don't think so. I think if that's someone who can take on the different things, when you were saying that, it reminded me of we hired someone that we called our director of special projects. So 
sort of a similar role and he was fantastic and he was great. And one of the things that we asked him to do, well, the first thing we asked him to do was to build some reporting and dashboards. And he likes to say that he did such a poor job at that, that we quickly turned him to a second job, which was, hey, we didn't have a sales organization at all at the time. And should we, do we need a sales org? We didn't talk to our customers at all. They all came online. And so he was tasked with figuring out whether it made sense for us to have some kind of a sales organization to engage with our customers more. And that was five and a half years ago. And he is now our chief revenue officer. He's grown in that role tremendously and he's been awesome at it. So there's a situation where he was a generalist. And I think over time, he's become quite the specialist, but with generalized capabilities too. So if it's the right person, I would see if there's something that you can test that person on and, and hopefully make that work out. That would be my suggestion. I think that's great advice. And what a journey to CRO. I didn't actually know that. I do want to ask it because now we've identified you know, the sport that we're playing, basketball or American football, say, and we know the type of person or the type of talent we need. Now, I heard from Ryan Pugh, you've had candidates that accepted roles on plane rides, in grocery stores, and in many more weird and wonderful locations. So how do you fundamentally find great talent was Brian's first question. I would say the key is always be looking. And to me, that means realizing that great people can come from anywhere, right? In all of your interactions, I think we've probably all been in situations where we've interacted with someone, maybe it's at the Kinko's or somewhere. And we just think, wow, that person is just amazing at what they do. Um, you know, whether it's from a customer interaction perspective or whether, you know, someone we meet and just have a introduced by a friend and have random conversations with. So I think always be looking. And I think it also means looking for people who may be working outside of the role that you think you're hiring for. You know, sometimes some people would be willing to make the jump into a different career track or role. And some people aren't. But I think about our head of people. And I remember looking for this role and thinking about this role and reading something that she had written and seeing her background. And she was a lawyer. And usually when you think of lawyers, I don't think you necessarily think of people person and someone who would lead your people <laughs> organization. And I can say that being a lawyer myself. But I could just tell from reading what she had wrote in this interview that she was a kind of person that was fantastic. It really cared about people. She worked in employment law, so it wasn't completely separated from the area we we're looking for. And so just grabbed lunch with her under the auspices of perhaps pretending to hire her for some of our legal needs and people needs, but really to feel out whether she'd be interested in a career switch. And it took a little bit of time, but she did come and it's been fantastic on both sides. I think she would agree. I love the always looking. And I also love the kind of open-mindedness to bring in someone who maybe isn't currently doing that role. Can I ask, does that change if it's maybe a C-suite role or a head of sales, a VP of marketing, does that willingness to take someone from an outside role that's not in that role currently, does that change if it's a C-suite role where you need to lead a team around it? Yeah, I think it probably does, especially once you get later stage, once you start to get later where you need more specialists and specialization and a little bit of experience, I think that does matter. But I think early on, it's easier to do that. And part of it is getting to know the person and understanding whether that you think they're going to be a right fit and successful in that role. And so I think there's a part of that process, which is mainly getting to know the person, what makes them tick. And it's almost nothing to do with the job. It's more about getting to know them individually, personally. Do you feel like they're the person with the right kind of values that would fit with your company's values? And also whether you think they're looking for that challenge to do something a little bit different. Speaking of that kind of dating period, so to speak, where you're really getting to know each other, it's really kind of the chase for talent. But I mean, I heard from a lot of the people that we spoke to and we both know that you really engage heavily in the interview process. And I know you interviewed every candidate for the first six years at the company. So why were you so engaged for so long, I guess, first? Let's start with that. Well, I believe that hiring is the most important part of what I do. I don't want to micromanage people. I want them to have the autonomy to work on the projects that they know will move the business forward. But that's really a theory that only works well if we hire individuals who we can 
trust to tackle the problems that we face. So it comes down to finding the right people and putting them in the right role. And quite frankly, it's a little bit of self-preservation, right? If you can hire great people, that makes your job and your life easier. You can give away more parts of your responsibilities. And so, like I said, it's sort of self-preservation. And I think I stayed involved and I do still stay involved as much as I can, because every time you delegate a task, you become a little bit more removed from things. So the person my CEO thinks is perfect might be different from the person I think is perfect, similarly with my VP of sales. And of course, you know, I'm not going to veto or rarely will I veto a person that everyone else likes. But I think I like to check in to understand if we're all staying synced on the same page in terms of the kinds of people, the kinds of skills, the kind of experience, the kind of passion and drive that we're looking for in people we bring on board. Can I ask? So I love that as a perspective in terms of really not owning that, but being part of that process and kind of the importance of it. When does it become unscalable, do you think? And how did you manage to scale it for so long? In terms of how I was able to scale it for so long, I think it was just, again, trying to set aside the time, realizing that this is one of the most important things I do. But as we grow, of course, it's become harder for me to be in every interview. And so we've put in place different mechanisms. I still certainly try to be involved when my schedule permits and for certain roles. But we've also implemented a hiring committee so that it's not just me, but other people, other executives as well. We all meet together and we go through each person that we're trying to hire into the company. And we talk about why this person is the right fit. And in terms of what I look for, I think there's something I often do when I'm meeting someone that I think gets at what I look for. One of our core values is this idea of passion and excellence in everything we do. And so I'm looking for that passion. So I will sometimes ask people to teach me about something and it can be anything that they want. It could be business related, job related, or it can be something that they're interested in personally, a hobby. But I want it to be something that they're really passionate about and that they feel they understand and know really, really well. And I think I do that for two reasons. One, as I mentioned, we want to hire people who are just very curious, very passionate about what they do. And I found that people who have passion in one area tend to be passionate about many other things as well. It's somewhat counterintuitive, quite frankly. You would think that people who are passionate about one thing devote all of their time to it. But I found that people who are excellent and passionate in one area tend to be the ones who excel across the spectrum. And then secondly, I think you can just really learn a lot about a person when you hear them talk and describe something they truly care about. I totally agree. And I haven't actually heard that in terms of kind of teaching something and really kind of revealing that passion. I guess my subsequent question is, when we think about bringing in those excellent people, the biggest challenge or thought that I have is when you're bringing in incredible talent and there's internal candidates who think that they're ready for that particular promotion, say, how do you voice it to them? And how do you think about bringing in external talent, but without demotivating or disincentivizing internal talent if they're maybe not getting the promotion that they thought? Yeah, I think that's a great question. And I think our goal is always to grow the people we have. We believe that we've hired a great group of people, some of them early in their careers. And the reason that they came here and took a chance with us is because they saw that opportunity to develop and grow themselves you know, quickly. And so we always want to give them that opportunity. So I think all things being equal, we would love to have people internally step up into those roles. And I think we go out of our way to make sure that they're given the opportunity to do that. At the same time, I think we have to be realistic and sometimes people just aren't ready for that next role. And I think it's key to bring in those people who are here internally, those more junior people respect and feel that they can learn from. And it's important to bring people in who care about mentoring and working with a great team and not just telling these people what to do, but getting their buy-in and getting their feedback. And you know that's part of the culture within the company. And I think in situations where we've done that, we found that even though people could have viewed themselves as quote unquote passed over for a position, they've really appreciated the fact that we brought in someone that they can learn from and can mentor them and they've been 
been excited about it. So I think done well, there's that possibility of making it a win-win. Can I ask, how do you do it well? Is it taking them aside, being very compassionate, being very empathetic? Is it by bringing them into the process itself? How do you think about making that process as kind of successful and effective as possible? Yeah, I think you definitely want to bring them into the process. No one, I think, is fond of showing up one day and being told that they have a new boss if they haven't been engaged in that process. So I think as much as possible, bring people into the process. But yes, talking with people realistically and saying, hey, we know you're interested in this role and we've talked to you about this role. We don't think you're quite ready for it yet, but we think that with the coaching and mentoring that you can get from this new person, that will open up new opportunities for you. And we think that's going to be here with our company. But you know, if not, it will certainly prepare you for wherever you might want to go next as well. And of course, we want those people to stay. And typically that has worked out. No, absolutely. I'm, I'm sure it has. As I said, I had many great things also about kind of internal upskilling that you've done at LucidShot. I do want to ask you, because with this additional layers of management and with the scaling that we talked about, there often comes these kind of incumbent processes, which prevent a little bit of agility maybe. How do you think about allowing for agility as you grow and scale headcount? Yeah, this is something I've been thinking a lot about relatively recently. I've come to believe that taking time to establish processes can sometimes initially slow things down, but it's actually essential for a larger team to maintain that agility that you talk about throughout scaling. And to be clear, this is not something I've always believed. It's something I've sort of grudgingly uh, come to realize. You know, and I'll go back to the sports analogy, because I think this transition has a lot to do with that shift from generalist to specialists. In football, you need to have a playbook. And it's not just one or two plays. It's a whole binder full of plays because you need to coordinate a lot better. You have to have known set plays so that each specialized position knows what they're responsible for in order to make the play successful. Everyone can't just go off and do their own thing. And, you know, I think we've been in this process of making the shift from sports, from playing basketball to playing football for the last couple of years. Last year, we added almost 200 new people. And without having the right processes in place, it's hard to understand whether the people you're hiring can even be productive in their role. And because we've hired such great people, I think we're probably a bit late to the game on process. You know, we were sort of so good at playing basketball for so long that we need to slow down now to understand how to play football in order to go faster together as a team. And this really takes a shift from the leadership perspective as well. It's a shift towards sort of systemization. And maybe let me give you an example. So when we were smaller, the right people to make a decision would meet and talk and make a decision. And then everyone knew you made the decision and you'd go out and you'd execute. But now we run into questions about how does the organization even know when a decision has been made? Is it when someone says something to their team? Or is it when there's a formal email or Slack message that goes out announcing this change? Or is there some other mechanism just to communicate what has been decided? Like even things as simple as that require just much more coordination. And that's not something that I necessarily realized earlier on. So I think you have to be explicit about why we have to make these shifts, you know, we're not being Machiavellian. It's just the reality of being at scale. And there's too many pieces to wing it. So not everyone can be in the conversations. I think we've probably all been in that situation where you are in a meeting and there's 14 people in the meeting and you wonder, like, do most of the people need to be here? But, you know, they're used to being there because they're used to being part of every single conversation and decision. And we just had a meeting with sales leadership yesterday and the feedback that they heard was they're not spending enough time with their teams. And that's because they're getting pulled into meetings all of the time. And so we're trying to put together some formalization about, well, who should be in these meetings? And then how do those people communicate the information to the to other people who need to know so that the information can get disseminated? So as you scale, not everyone can have the combination of context and expertise and the personal relationships that you used to have when you were smaller. So you need some process in order to help bridge everything together. Can I ask a very tough one? I, I didn't quite know 200 people 
people join last year. That's incredible. I mean, that's like one every other day, more than that. And as I said, unfair of me to ask, but what's the most challenging thing that comes with scale at that level? I think it's a little bit to the previous point about making the people come in feel like they are a true owner of their area and not just their area, but hopefully of the company as a whole as well. And so we tell people that, yes, we're hiring you into this particular role and there are things we want accomplished, but we want to give you the authority and autonomy to be innovative and to experiment and to knock it out of the park in that area. In fact, what comes with that autonomy is the expectation that you're going to own the area. You're not just going to expect someone to tell you what to do, but you're going to spend all of your time and talent and energy figuring out what the right thing is to do. And we really want you to feel that ownership because it's only by pushing that ownership down to everyone where we can really excel. I think if you have a bunch of people who just want to do the task that they've been asked, then I think you don't scale very well. And that comes to a grinding halt pretty quickly. Final one, but you said there about that feeling of kind of ownership. How do you create that ownership one? And then how do you sustain it, literally? Yeah, that's a great question. I think if you've been part of a company that's grown and scaled, you've probably heard people talk about, you know, the good old days and how they feel disconnected. I mentioned earlier that I sort of very begrudgingly came to my current point of view because I myself, you know, felt that sort of longing for the way things used to be, where we could move faster, where you could just know what was going on. And I think the key is this, if you can map out for each person, each employee, how it is that what they do, their role and their contribution, how that supports the bigger initiatives at their department level and even at the company level, I think they're much more likely to be innovative and to feel ownership in that role. So I think where we fail is when employees don't understand their why and how that applies to the bigger goal and the bigger picture. So when there isn't that shared understanding of the bigger mission, and then people end up either innovating in their silos or just worried about their immediate KPIs and their metrics and their team, then when you start to aggregate that up, the risk is everything doesn't get pulled together. It doesn't actually fit together, or uh, it doesn't end up benefiting the company by moving in the same direction. Or we realize that multiple people and multiple groups have been working on the same thing and we've doubled the work and no one even knew that. So I think understanding our internal operations and how everything works together can not only create sort of cohesion throughout the company, but it ultimately results in sort of a better product and a better experience for our customers as well. No, I mean, it absolutely does having that kind of extreme cohesion and alignment throughout the org. I do want to move though, Carl, into my favorite element of any episode, there being the quick fire round. So I say a short statement and then you hit me with your immediate thoughts. Are you ready to dive in? Ready, let's go. So we spoke about scaling the team there. What's the hardest role to hire for today and why do you think that is? Probably the role we're trying to hire now is always the hardest, but probably someone great on the product side. I think it's a blend of so many things, a blend of vision, but also empathy and also being strategic, but also being able to execute tactically and operationally. And so I think that's really a hard one to find. Tell me a moment in your life that's maybe served as an inflection point and changed the way you think. I think by nature, I'm always the kind who thinks about what could be better, you know, what's next. And so you're always not satisfied. And I think there are points in life, for example, when you have someone close to you who gets sick or goes through a difficult time and you realize that to be grateful and thankful for the things that we have and and overall things are so good. And so I think just that perspective and outlook, of course, you still want to be driven and push forward and be aggressive, but also realizing how fortunate that most of us in tech have it. Totally. No, I do agree with that. Now, a little birdie tells me that you're an amazing father, husband, and even skier. So how do you make the work-life balance work so well? You know, I think work-life 
work-life balance is an elusive concept without a clear definition. And for me personally, I really can't compartmentalize and break them up. So for me, it's much about work-life integration. So that means maybe I'm taking a few calls between my daughter's performances or the occasional caller meeting while I'm on vacation. But that also means that I can break away from work if there is something important that's going on. And so to me, it's really about making those two integrated and fit together. I found that's what works best for me. I also recognize that doesn't work for everyone. So I've tried really hard to provide an atmosphere where everyone is able to create their own definition. What do you believe that most around you disbelieve? I believe there is a right way to load the dishwasher. (laughs) What is that way called? Come on, educate me. My mother will love you for this one. Well, it's like a big game of Tetris. I think fitting in the right things in the right order, forks, tines up as well as tines down because you can get twice as much into the dishwasher, making sure that things are not haphazard, but you know, in parallel rows, I think you can just fit a lot more. That's my goal is to fit as much into the dishwasher in one load as possible. The biggest bugbear for me is people that put knives, forks, and all other utensils in the same compartment in the dishwasher. And it just makes taking them out and unpacking a nightmare. So uh, totally aligned to you there. What a passion we both share. Gosh, Thanks. I wonder why I'm still single. At least you're married. Uh, <laughs> uh, tell me, what do you know now that you wish you'd known at the beginning of your time with Lucid Chart? Figure out what you love doing, what you're really passionate about, and get to doing that as soon as possible, rather than feeling like you need to go through the five or eight steps in between that you think you need to, or that other people think you need to, or that typically happens between where you are now and where you want to get to be. So I would say find what you love and get to that in the fewest steps possible. I think you're the perfect example of that, Harry. So I think that's a great example to all of us. That is very, very kind of you. Uh, Very lucky to have the time and support of people like you. So listen, I really appreciate you coming on the show. As I said, I had so many good things from George at Maritech. I was super excited for this one. It's been fantastic to have you on. So thank you so much for joining me. Thank you, Harry. It's been a pleasure. Such an awesome guest to have on the show, and I really couldn't be more excited for the exciting times ahead with Lucid Chart. And if you'd like to see more from us, you can find us on Instagram behind the scenes at hdebbings1996 with two Bs. I would love to see you there. But before we leave you today, you have to check out Cordoba. Cordoba is the leading AI writing assistant used by companies like Intuit and Twitter to keep content on brand. These days, literally everyone with a company writes content, and because of this, it's hard for everyone to stay aligned and maintain consistency. With Cordoba, you can customize writing guidelines lines to your unique brand and get everyone at your company to write with the same style, terminology, and brand voice whenever and wherever they are writing content. For Sasta listeners, Cordoba is providing a 25% discount off the first year for their starter plan. You can sign up for a free trial and get this offer by visiting cordoba.com forward slash Sasta. That's Cordoba with a Q. Writing is one way of attracting new customers, but another way is to increase conversion and to collect and display reviews from your past customers. That's where reviews.io comes in. Reviews.io not only collects reviews from your happy customers, but is also able to help you publish these reviews on Google and on your social media platform of choice. Reviews.io is a fully API-driven solution that can be fully customized around your company requirements. Reviews.io is packed full of useful features, but one that I found the most useful is that they're able to tell me who my most powerful brand advocates are via the Reviews.io dashboard. Reviews.io is used by over 5,000 companies, including leaders of industry like Brex, Opendoor, and Carfax, and as a 
special offer for Sasta listeners. Reviews.io is giving one month free, no risk to all listeners. Just use the promo code Harry. That's H-A-R-R-Y. But now we've acquired those customers. That's just the beginning. And that's why you need to try Zoho CRM, catering to businesses of all sizes, guaranteeing shorter sales cycles and higher customer retention rates. Who does not love that? Plus, the software gives you complete visibility and control over your customer's life cycle and equips you to connect with your customers across every channel. It also offers integrations with over 300 of the most popular apps on the market. While change is inevitable, it can be comfortable with Zoho CRM. Sign up with Zoho CRM in two easy steps. First, visit zohocrm.com forward slash Sasta and then hit the Get Started button. It's as simple as it sounds. Start your free trial by clicking the button on the same page. You'll also be happy to know that Zoho CRM offers a version that's completely free. Again, sign up with Zoho, the world's favorite CRM, at zohocrm.com forward slash Sasta. As always, I so appreciate all your support and I can't wait to bring you a fantastic episode next week.